Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. This is a, a great and celebratory time for us to be together, and uh, we're, we're doing all the things today with uh, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper that's coming later. And so if you don't have your elements, I remembered to grab mine. We have a couple of different options for you back there. But uh, now's the time to do that, or maybe while we're praying and no one else sees, you can sneak back there. And, uh, and, and we're also um, going to be opening God's Word and talking about the gospel of all things. Talking from Matthew, and uh, we're going to look at several different chapters starting in uh, Matthew 26, but I'm not going to read them necessarily in order, uh, nor am I going to read all the chapters, just in case you were wondering uh, how exactly long you should plan to, to be here. <laughs> We'll, we'll try to uh, we'll try to keep it within normal limits, but um, I'm not sure what normal limits for me would be. But uh, this is a celebratory time. This is uh, a, a time of year when we get to pay special attention to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. We get to pay special attention to the gospel and this salvation that God has accomplished on our behalf. And so uh, it is a time of celebration. And so there is joy and there's uh, excitement and there's laughter and there's fun. And, uh, and there are extra things scheduled. And that's on purpose because we want it to be a party. This is something that we are celebrating what God has done. And so um, uh, Resurrection Sunday, as has been mentioned, already comes after Good Friday. And Good Friday is a good Friday. But it's where we remember the crucifixion. It's where we remember, call to mind what uh, happened to Jesus on uh, that cross. And so, to that end, we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 27. And I will start in verse 33. Matthew 27, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land 
until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. And in doing so, we recognize that we get to worship you in spirit and in truth because of what we will talk about today. Because of what Jesus did for us. Even as we read now about his crucifixion, about his death, and we'll read about his resurrection and even as we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we recognize that we get to worship You. We get to have peace with You because of these things Jesus accomplished. We doubt, bow down before You and worship You. Give You honor. And we rejoice in Your grace towards us. And this morning... As we open Your Word, as we talk about these things, we ask that You would be at work in us by Your Spirit through the proclamation of Your Word, that You would teach us, that You would change us, that You would draw us in our hearts and our eyes and our minds to You. We pray even, Father, that You would draw some to Yourself savingly this morning. We ask for Your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, today is a very special day in the calendar of the church. And here at Parkside, we don't spend a lot of time on uh, the church calendar. There are many other uh, uh, times of celebration and whatnot throughout the year that uh, different churches celebrate. And we don't tend to go uh, too much into that. But certainly when it comes to Easter, when it comes to Resurrection Sunday... We pause and we focus, we call to mind what has been accomplished on our behalf on this day. That this uh, is a day of remembering what happened. We don't think that it was this day, uh, you know, on this date, uh, all those years ago when, when uh, these things happened. This is the day we bring it to mind. It was God's working and we want to remember God's working when we look back and we see that Jesus was crucified, and that's something that we think about, we ought to think about throughout the year, throughout our normal course of our lives, that we ought to be thinking about Jesus being crucified for us. We ought to be thinking about the fact that God raised him from the dead and did so for us. We benefit from that. Those are things we ought to think about throughout the year, and we do talk about them a lot. But on this day, we have a special time to focus on and to celebrate what God has accomplished in the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And today, actually, even more than that, is a little bit more of a visual aid Sunday as we started with baptism. And we had demonstrated for us a picture of what Christ accomplished. And those who were baptized even talked about some of that picture. And we're going to get more into that later on. And then after... 
we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate that. And that's another visual aid. And it's not just visual. It's not just a picture out there. But we, we taste it and we feel it and we smell it and we partake of it together. We actually consume it. This is us being drawn into worship in new and deeper ways. And so uh, today the goal is for us to focus on these last chapters of Matthew because he talks about the crucifixion. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about resurrection and talks about baptism all in these final chapters. And so we want to uh, just touch these very briefly this morning. The first point you have in their outline, which uh, in your outline, which uh, comes from Matthew chapter 27, is about the substitution of Jesus. The substitution of Jesus. This is about the resurrection. This is the passage we just read that reflects on the events of what happened on Good Friday. And this is just a small portion. This is just a snippet, a peek at some of the things that happened there. But I want to notice a couple of things as we focus briefly on this passage. And the first one is about taking the crucifixion for granted. Taking the crucifixion for granted. One of the things that strikes me nearly every time I read the Gospels, any Gospel account of the crucifixion, the very description of the crucifixion, It's actually not even described. It's just said in passing, they crucified him. Just a few words, they crucified him. And there was a movie that came out not long ago, and and if you you think back on that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and you think about how much time was spent in the act of crucifying him, it, it was minutes and minutes and minutes spent to, dedicated to, portraying that for us, but not for the gospel writers. The gospel writers say simply, when they had crucified him, they did this. Or, and then they crucified him. And then this thing happened. And for them, it wasn't because they were taking it for granted. It's because it was etched in their memory. It was etched in their hearts. Jesus, their Lord, being hung on a cross for them. They, they would never have been able to get that image out of their mind. Whether they saw it themselves or simply heard about it, they would never have been able to get that out of their minds. This Jesus, who is their Lord, who is the one they trusted, they followed, they walked with, hung on a cross. A place of, of torture and a place of execution. And there is the Lord of life hanging there. So they didn't take it for granted. They mentioned it in passing. And I'm sure for everyone who had been there, for everyone who was of this generation, when they read those words and they crucified him, that right there would have gone right to the heart. But that was, that was for them. That was for the people living in, in that day. Well, what about in our day? Well, growing up in our culture, growing up in our day, it's easy to take the crucifixion for granted. I mean, for us, it's ancient history. Even for for those who are not Christians, you have the image in your mind, you have the idea in your mind of Jesus being crucified. You may not understand why. You may not understand what all went into it or any part of that, but but it's, it's, it's history. And so it's kind of easy to blow by it, to read past it and not really pay attention to it. And so that's why we have 
Good Friday. And that's why we have Resurrection Sunday services. So we can pause and we can think, we can meditate on, and we can not blow by the crucifixion that our Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord of life, was hung on a tree, was executed, put there not for what He had done. He had done nothing wrong. But put there for what I have done, what you've done, hung there on that tree in our place. The innocent, holy, righteous Son of God was nailed to that cross because of my sin and the sins of others like me. In my place, condemned, He stood The second thing I want to notice, though, as we think through our passages in verse 37, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Over his head, they put the charge against him. They put a placard. They put a a little sign and they wrote on it these words. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But it's important for us to remember this is not a billboard. It's not celebrating something he had said. This is not, you know, a thought bubble or a meme or something like that. This, this actually is the charge leveled against him. He's the king of the Jews. And there is no king but Caesar. There is, there is no king. Not like this man says he's the king. And so this charge that's leveled against him, the other, uh, we read about it in the Gospels, how actually the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that, when Pilate put that sign up, it said, the king of the Jews... They, they said, no, no, you should change the sign and you should make it say, this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Don't, don't actually state it. And Pilate, of course, said, no, what I've written, I've written. And so we'll let it stand. And there's great irony in that. The charge leveled against him is he's the king of the Jews. He made himself out to be a king. But what's the irony? He actually is the king. He is the king of the Jews just not like they expected. They, they expected, they hoped for some kind of deliverer who would deliver them in some sort of a physical sense, in a, a political sense, to set them free from Rome, to set them free from any other kind of captivity or, or any other uh, uh, government that would stand against them or army or uh, any kind of chains or slavery, to set up a kingdom like the one they had in the Old Testament, only better. That was the expectation. So... Jesus comes on the scene, and that's not what he came to do. He came to lead his people in a very different way than the one they expected. And we can get a glimpse, we can see the way that he intended to lead his people when we notice something that happened at the very moment of his death. Look at verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up, his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God's presence opened to us. He came to lead his people, not in some kind of rebellion, not in some kind of revolt, not to throw off the shackles or, th- or throw off uh, Rome or anything like that. He, he came to accomplish something entirely new and entirely different and unexpected To the majority of the people, he came to open God's presence to them and to us. You see, the 
the, the, the temple, the curtain of the temple, uh, re- requires that we understand a little bit about the way the temple was designed, where the, what the architecture was like. That they, they had a holy place, and that there was certain furniture in there and things that, that where worship would go on. There was the altar and, and different, different uh, furniture and ways, means of worship there in the holy place. But back behind the holy place was a place called the Holy of Holies, meaning the holiest place. And in that place, only one person could go, and only one time a year, to offer sacrifice. That place, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, represented God's presence. This is where God lived, as it were. And so, one person, the high priest, could go into that place one time per year. It was that holy. It was that set apart. I remember growing up having uh, neighbors and friends who had a special room in the house. This was like the fancy uh, living room area. And well, I didn't grow up with that kind of idea. I thought you lived in your house, you know, all parts of it. And, and I would want to go there and go play in that fancy special living room area. No, no, we don't do that. That's, that's for special occasions or, or whatever. Well, it's, it's that kind of idea, but to the infinite. You don't just go there. I mean, you could go to the temple regularly. You could go and worship. But you couldn't go into that holiest place. It was reserved. It was special. It was set apart. And so the, the divider between the holy place and the holiest place was this big curtain. It hung down between the two. Not like a thin little curtain that you can kind of see through and, and, and hear through and, and, you know, kind of move aside easily. This was a curtain that was thick and it was tall and it was ornate and beautiful and heavy. That was the divider between the, the holy place and the holiest place. That was the divider between a place that you could have access to, kind of regular access to, and a place that you could not have access to. God's very presence, because God is holy. He's not like us. He's separate from us. He's, he's not common. He's holy and set apart, and His presence is holy. And the holiest place is a holy place. And so when Jesus died, what happened? The curtain of that temple was torn in two. There was a, there was a way opened into the very presence of God. There was no longer that same divider between man, fallen man, and the very holy presence of God. It had been torn in two. And it had been torn in two from top to bottom. I think that symbolizes for us that this was God accomplishing this. This wasn't something that man was doing. Like, hey, let's, you know, let's make these two rooms into one room. Let's have access to that holiest place. Let's let's make that a part of our regular worship. And so we're going to tear this thing apart. Now, this was God saying, because of what Jesus did, because of his death, this way is opened into the very holiest presence of God. They didn't expect Jesus. He didn't meet their anticipation, their expectations for what he would accomplish. And still today, he doesn't meet the expectations of many people. Often people want things from Jesus that he could provide. He has the power to provide them. They want things from him like health. 
They want things from him like comfort. And they're willing to come to him if it means he will give them comfort and health or maybe abundance, right? Provision, success. And we would be happy with Jesus if that's what he offered us. Those are the things that so many people expect from him. That's the kind of Jesus they want. That's the kind of Jesus they do anticipate. Though he does have the power to do those things, to give those things to whomever he wishes, those things are not his primary focus. His purpose is to be the one who opens the way for us to his Father's very presence. And that's what he accomplished. But so often he doesn't meet expectations Uh, the expectations of so many people because of what he provides. But that raises the question, well, did he meet God's expectations? And that brings us to our second point, which takes us to a different passage about the vindication of Jesus. Go to chapter 28 of Matthew. If the last chapter we read about was Good Friday, the events of the crucifixion, this one describes for us the events of the resurrection So we read, beginning in chapter 28 and verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there... They will see me. So here we have a description of the resurrection, that that moment when when Jesus is found not to be in the tomb. He's not among the dead anymore. He's he's alive now. He's been raised. He's he's back among the living. And you have this angel come out and speak with the women. But a couple of things I want to notice. First of all, is that the resurrection is unanticipated. The women didn't expect this. Jesus' followers were so shocked and so brokenhearted by what had happened on Friday that by the time Sunday rolled around, they were still shocked and still brokenhearted. And we see that the women, where did they go? They went to see the tomb, the place that marked his death, the place where, in their minds, his body lay. They expected him still to be dead, it would seem. Jesus had told them several times throughout his ministry, particularly as his ministry progressed. He told them, look, I'm I'm going to be 
to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I will actually die. And the people had a tough time believing that. His followers thought he must be speaking in some manner of parable or in some, some figurative language, and they couldn't quite grasp it. They didn't really get it, so he told them again, and then he told them again. And that was a, a recurring theme as they weren't understanding that. But at the same time, he was telling that. He was telling them, but I will be raised. I will be raised. I will be raised on the third day. They should have expected it. But here we sit thousands of years later, and it's pretty easy for us to look back and say, they should have figured it out. I mean, we figured it out, right? But they were in the, in the heat of that moment, and the resurrection was unanticipated, unexpected to them. It was a, a shock to them. The second thing I want to notice is what we read there in verse 6. The angel says, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Raised to life again. What the angel said to these women who were grieving, who were experiencing a deep, gut-wrenching sorrow and loss. What the angel said was probably the last thing you would ever expect to hear about someone who has passed away. He's not here. He's living. He's alive. He's been raised to newness of life. He has risen from the dead. He hadn't simply been resuscitated as if he had passed out on the cross and then got stuck in a tomb, a, a, a cold, dank tomb, because that's not where you would go to be resuscitated if you were just suffering physically. He was actually dead. Experts, the world's leading experts in death, knew he was dead. And then they stuck him in a tomb. It wasn't just that he had been resuscitated. And it wasn't as if he had just been raised back to life like, hey, we'll forget the last three days and you can have your life back the way it was. Still anticipating death in the future. He wasn't just reestablished into the kind of life that he had before. Like Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, he saw death again. Now, this was a, a new kind of life. This was the kind of life given after death where he would never expect death again. Death no longer had mastery over him. He had nothing to fear from death. He had nothing to expect from death. He had conquered death in its entirety. He had been raised to life again. New and true and lasting eternal life. It's no longer subject to death. Death was defeated. Death no longer had power over him. And having tasted it once, Jesus will never taste it again. Raised to life again. This, I want to pause for a second working through our story and just talk about us. Talk about what it means to be in Christ. That in Christ we also have been raised to newness of life. Anyone who believes in Christ has also passed from death to life. As Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Though physical death is still in our future, 
we still expect and will see, most likely, physical death in our future, even as Christians. The eternal death of judgment is not before us. That death has been taken from us. That death has been experienced by Jesus. He took that death of judgment upon himself so that his death counts as our death. And his being raised to newness of life counts as our being raised to newness of life. That's what it means to be in Christ. What he has accomplished is given to us. That we in him no longer have that penalty before us, no longer have death before us, no longer have that expectation. It has been paid finally and fully and completely in Christ. And he's been raised to newness of life. And so though we will face physical death, yet spiritually, that death of judgment has been placed on Jesus so that we receive the life that's the benefit of that. So that we will live for all eternity that though we will face death in the body, yet we have eternal life right now. Never to die spiritually. And after we have died, our bodies will also be raised. That in the end, Christ will guarantee, has already guaranteed our resurrection, that we will be restored to life. We will have a new resurrection body, never to taste death of any kind ever again. That's the new life that we have. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's the one of the benefits that comes to us. But I want to notice something that we see here in, uh, in verse 8. When the women heard this, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and joy together. When, when they went away, they'd had this conversation with the angel. The angel had told them what to expect. And we know that just a, a verse or two later, they're going to meet the resurrected Lord Jesus. And he's going to say, greetings. He's going to greet them and they get to worship him. They get to bow down to him. They get to be in his presence. Yet that hasn't happened yet. They've been told by the angel what to expect. That, no, he's not here among the dead anymore. He's been raised. And you're going to see him again. So you can imagine that they were filled with joy. The, the excitement, that the loss they had experienced, that, that deep sorrow that went right down to their bones had now been lifted. That Jesus, that they had placed all their hope in, that they had trusted and they had followed, they had believed in Him, had died on that cross and their, their hearts had been broken. All their hopes dashed. And now to hear from an angel of the Lord, He's been raised raised to newness of life, that he, he's alive again. He's not among the tombs anymore. He's not among the dead anymore. He's alive and you're going to see him. You can imagine the joy, all of that sorrow and that pain being lifted and reversed and the great joy and the, and the excitement. You would expect dancing. You would expect laughter. You would expect uh, uh, smiles and tears. And you'd be right to expect those things. But that's not all it says. They... They went away with fear and joy. Why fear? It's not because they were afraid of the angel. 
the angel had come and spoken, and, and as angels often do, we have a picture of angels as these cute little pink babies with wings flying in the clouds, and no one would ever be scared of them. But when an angel appears in the Bible, what is the first thing he has to say? Don't be afraid. You get all the way into Revelation, and it's worse than that. Stop worshiping me. Don't bow down to me, right? They're, they're, ma- they're, they're majestic creatures. Majestic and, and wonderful and awe-inspiring to see them. They've just seen this messenger, and he said to them, don't be afraid. But he's passed on the message also that Jesus has been raised. Why, why would they go away with fear still? Did they not believe him? Did they not obey him? I think the fear that they experienced was the fear that comes with brushing up against the workings of God. Just like in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes across the burning bush, how, how amazing would that have been to see? A bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed, and it's, it's obviously miraculous, and, and, and it's amazing to see. And Moses was struck by this. And what did, what did God tell him to do? Take your sandals from off your feet. The place you were standing is holy ground. The place these women were walking was holy ground. Not because it was a cemetery. Not because it was in the Holy Land. But because God was working there. That He had just miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. That God was... God was pouring out His miraculous work in a way they had never seen before. Here, these women who had been with Him throughout His ministry, they had seen Jesus heal people, multiply food, perform other kinds of miracles, even raise the dead. Yet this miracle of Jesus being raised from the dead was on an entirely different order. And there was fear. This is the working of God. This is not just a happy time. It is a happy time. It's a rejoicing time. And there's an awareness that the God of all creation, Almighty God Himself, has just done the most magnificent and wonderful miracle ever in raising Jesus from the dead. As, as Christians, we, we celebrate this new life we have, we celebrate the wonders that God has given us. We celebrate what God has done for us. The fact that, that we are new creatures in Christ. And we should do that. And there's a, there's a joy that runs deep. It runs all the way down. And it is God who does that. God in whose presence there is a sense of trembling. Not because we're afraid and want to run away, but because... This is God at work. And these women saw God at work performing the greatest miracle ever. And so they went away rejoicing and with a sense of awe and fear. God is at work. And so Jesus is vindicated. I asked the question, since, since everyday people in that time and in this time, you know, when they think about Jesus and, and, uh, and, and what he's actually like, they're, they're kind of, they think, well, you know, I was kind of hoping for more stuff, health, um, smiling, the comfort in life. I was more service to me, please. 
in the ways that I would like. They, they, Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. But we can see that Jesus met God's expectations. Why do I say that? God, God was the one who got to determine, is Jesus going to be raised from the dead or not? Jesus made all these promises. He did all these things. He spoke very highly. He even claimed himself to be God's son. Said he was going to be raised from the dead. Said he had the, the power to forgive sins. Does Jesus have the power to forgive sins? Is he going to be raised from the dead? Well, God gets to determine that. And we get to see the verdict from where we sit. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, restored him to life, God was saying, and I agree wholeheartedly. Amen and amen. And so though so many of us have expectations of Jesus that are not, that are not met because our expectations, by the way, are really low when what he has to offer is eternal life. Yet God's expectations were perfectly met in Christ. He accomplished his mission. And we see that pictured for us as we turn to the end of Matthew chapter 28 in our identification with Jesus. We read these words starting at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Identification with Jesus. This is talking about many things in this passage. This is the Great Commission, and we could preach a long time on this, but today I want to point out the baptism that's involved. That he's, He says in here what we are to do. We are to go and make disciples of all the nations and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I want to notice just a couple of things very quickly. Baptism, first of all, is identification. It's identification. We listened to the testimonies this morning, and none of the people testifying this morning, none of the people who were baptized this morning said, yeah, I want to be baptized in this water so I can have my sins forgiven. I want to be baptized in this water so I can be righteous before God, so I can accomplish something in what I'm doing. No, each one says, I want to be baptized because of Christ and what Christ has done. He has already accomplished something in my heart. I want to be identified with that. I want you to look and see I'm identifying with Christ. I want to recognize myself as I'm being dunked under the water and I become wet from the water that, that I am being buried with Christ. Just like Jesus was crucified and buried, was was under the water, as it were, when he was in the earth and raised to new life. That's what Jesus has done. And that's what Jesus has done for me when he took that penalty for me upon himself. And so when they're being baptized, they're saying, I want to identify before you, before God, with what Jesus has done for me. So baptism, first of all, is identification. It's, I, I like the illustration that if you had a, if you had a jar of, of like a, a purple dye, something that really would stain if you, know, if you spilled it, right? Something really, really dark. And then you took a, a white wool cloth and you dipped it in the jar. It comes out and 
and it will never get clean again. It will be that color. It has taken upon itself those qualities. It has become identified forever with that dye. And that's like us being baptized, that we have become identified forever in an outward physical way with what Christ has done. So baptism is identification. And second of all, all disciples are to be baptized. If, if you know Christ, if you have faith in Christ and you've not been baptized, you need to be. We're not waiting for you to get your life in order so that then you can be baptized. We're not waiting for you to become mature, whatever that means, and then be baptized. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you know Him, if, if He has died for you, been raised for you, so that you have your penalty of sin paid in Jesus, and you've been raised to newness of life with Him, you need to be baptized. All disciples are to be baptized. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's for everyone who is in Christ. All disciples are to be baptized. And thirdly, I want to note just in passing, one triune name. When we baptized these people, we didn't say, I baptize you now in the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We say we baptize in the name, singular, of three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is, this is us being identified, not just with Jesus by himself, not just with somebody named Jesus or those letters that make up that name. We're being baptized with Jesus, who is the second person of the triune God. There is only one name. There is only one God. But He exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so our baptism is Trinitarian. It's specifically Trinitarian. We're not just identifying with a Jesus somewhere that can be defined in multiple ways. We're identifying with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, who has accomplished our salvation for us. So that very, very briefly is the passage on the Great Commission, where he tells us that we are to go and make disciples and baptize them. What we did today, Jesus told us to do that. Jesus told us to do that, to be identified with him in baptism. And there's another illustration that we have for us today. And that illustration is here. It's in the Lord's Supper. So if you have your elements, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be talking about those for a moment. The Lord's Supper, or communion, is a commemoration of Jesus. It's a pointing back to what He has done. It's a calling to mind of His crucifixion, 
of him giving himself for us. This is what we get to celebrate together. We get to taste this, feel the crunch. And by the way, this thing's not very crunchy. I like the real stuff better, but that's okay. We get to feel the crunch. We get to taste it. We get to partake of the cup. We get to call to mind what Jesus has done for us. This is, this is a reminder, and we, we celebrate this monthly, so that we can be reminded regularly of what Jesus did for us. It was mentioned in our sunrise service this morning. Uh, Ricky said, much of the Christian life, and he would say all of the Christian life is about believing. It's about believing. We need to remember what it is we believe. We need to call to mind what it is we believe. We need to understand what it is we believe. And the elements of the Lord's Supper that we're going to participate in in just a moment, call those things to mind, remind us of the fact that that we had a debt, a sin debt before God that each one of us has. That we were born in Adam, the Bible says, that we had our own sins that we've contributed, that we have this, this debt before God. Remember we described God as being holy? That His His presence is pictured in the holiest place? Not even just a holy place or a relatively holy place. His residence is, is in the holiest possible place. That's because God is holy. He's separate from sin. And if you look into your own heart, if you look into your own life, you can see, but well, I'm not separated from sin. I, I still commit sin. And even times when I want to commit sin yet and don't actually do it physically, yet I, I do it in my mind. I do it in my heart. The, the, the stain of, the, of sin runs deep. That, that guilt is massive before a holy God who's my creator, to whom I'm accountable. What am I going to do? How can I clear that up? Uh, well, I can't. I can't clean up my life enough to be without sin. Even if from this day forward I, I cleaned up my life perfectly, which, by the way, is not possible, I would still have all the past years of guilt. How can I make up for that? I can't make up for that. So what am I to do? Where's my hope? I've got this guilt before God. And, and the Bible says that my guilt earns God's wrath and judgment. That that's what I deserve. That's the, the wage that I ought to get from God. Because of my own behavior, because of my own heart, because of those things, that debt I owe. What am I going to do? Well, this is where Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes on the scene. Who takes on flesh, is born as one of us, obeys where we have not, obeys perfectly from the heart, always, in his whole life, perfectly righteous, meeting God's demands, not just man's demands, God's demands. Righteous before God. And then that one, that pure and holy one, goes to the cross. To, to pay a penalty that I owe. To die there in my place. So that the wrath of God 
that I deserve, that I, that I have earned, the wage I ought to receive, is redirected to Him and poured out upon Him so that the punishment for my sin is visited upon Him. And He stands in my place and bears the judgment that I deserve. And by faith in Him, when I trust in Him, what, what happens is, is a great exchange where my guilt is placed on Him. His righteousness is given to me so that I have forgiveness before God. I, I have peace with God. I actually have the ability to enter right into the holiest place because the Holy Son of God has credited that to me. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, the commemoration of Jesus, the first question we need to ask here is who commemorates Jesus? Who commemorates Jesus in this way? It's the one for whom these things are true. It's the one who believes in Jesus, who trusts in Him, who realizes, I don't have what it takes. I can't measure up. I must have Christ as my Savior the one to provide forgiveness for my sins, the one to provide righteousness in my life. I must have Him. And trust in Christ, crying out to Him, abandoning all hope I, I, I would look for in myself and finding all my hope in Christ alone. That person has something to commemorate. That person has something to celebrate. And so that's what we do when we come to these elements. We see, first of all, His body broken for you. And so first, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we come to the bread. The bread which represents His own body broken for us. How can we have peace with God? How can we enter into the holiest place? Through that torn curtain. Through Jesus Himself. Through the only one who can mediate between us and God. The only one who can deliver us into God's presence, holy and pure. And it comes to us because of what Christ did in giving His own body. And we read these words in Matthew 26. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let me pray. Father, we hold in our hands a representation, a visual aid, a, a tactile aid, a Bread representing the very body of Christ broken for us. We rejoice and we praise you for this, the body of Christ given for us. We confess readily that we are not worthy of this. But by your grace and by your mercy, because of what Christ has done, we get to participate. We get to remind ourselves. We get to revel in what Christ has done for us in giving His own body as a sacrifice in our place.
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next is his blood spilled for you. We come to the cup. Another tactile representation, one we can taste, one we can smell, one we consume. We can see it. It's a picture for us. It's a reminder. It's a participation recalling what Christ has done for us. His blood spilled for us. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 26. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is his blood poured out for us, establishing a new covenant where we receive his favor because he gives it. Not because we have kept some law, not because we have met his standards, his requirements, not because we've measured up, but because he does it. And he gives it to us. And it's for us to receive represented in this cup. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate Jesus and him giving his own life's blood for us. And in so doing, giving up his life, but establishing a covenant for us. Righteousness established and given to us that we commemorate in this cup representing the blood of Christ. We rejoice and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is risen. Thank you for celebrating with me. Let's remember today, let's call to mind today these gospel truths that have been portrayed for us in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, and in these passages we looked at from Matthew. Let's call to mind, let's remember, and let's celebrate and rejoice and party in the fact that Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We celebrate that and we rejoice. Let me part with these words from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen and amen. God bless you all. We have a song we're going to sing and then we're going to uh, go out from there.